From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Hearing loss is a common problem as we age, but we don't have to suffer in silence. New treatment options, including hearing aids and cochlear implants, can offer help to most people suffering from hearing loss. We'll discuss treatment options and talk prevention of hearing loss with a Mayo Clinic expert. But typically what we say is at an arm's length away, you should be able to hear a conversation going on. So you shouldn't be able to surprise somebody that has their headphones on, um, especially your children. Also on the program, flu season is here. We'll have the latest recommendations on getting a flu shot to protect you and your family. And we'll hear why erectile dysfunction may be an early warning sign of current or future heart problems. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Hearing loss that occurs gradually as you age, it sort of sneaks up on you. Well, it's pretty common. About 25% of people in the United States between the ages of 55 and 64 have some degree of hearing loss. And for those over the age of 65, it's even worse. The number of people with some hearing loss is almost 50%. New advances in treatment options, including improved hearing aids and cochlear implant devices, mean treatment is available for most people. Here to talk about hearing loss and how it can be treated is Dr. Gayla Poling. Dr. Poling is the Director of Diagnostic Audiology at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Poling. Thank you for having me. Dr. Poling, good to have you with us. So almost half of people age 65 have some hearing loss. How do you explain it? Do our ears just sort of wear out? Well, it's a combination of factors. Some of it's just wear and tear. Our ears never take a break. You think about they're on 24 hours a day, seven days a week for our entire life. There's not a lot of time to relax there. No downtime for your ears. <laughs> no downtime for your ears. <laughs> we also have very noisy lifestyles, so there's lots of exposures throughout our day and throughout our lifetime that can combine over time to contribute to that change that we're seeing. Like uh, eyesight with cataracts, you know, if you live long enough, you pretty much everybody gets cataracts. If you live long enough, does everybody experience hearing loss? That's our current understanding that age-related hearing loss occurs for everybody. Now, there are certain factors that could accelerate that for some over others. Certainly, our genetic makeup might make a difference in that. So uh, if your parents uh, had difficulty hearing as they aged, you're more likely? There's some evidence that suggests that. We're still just starting to scratch the surface on our understanding there. But certainly, if you have age-related hearing loss in the family, it's something to mention and get a baseline evaluation. There's a, Being able to hear is actually a pretty complicated process, isn't it? I mean, there's a lot of different things inside the ear that allow you to, to hear, and then there's the nerve and the brain. And Can you quickly describe how it is that we something comes into our ear canal and we can actually hear it? Sure. Sound just comes in out in the environment into our outer ear, in through our middle ear and into our inner ear. Once it's in our inner ear or cochlea, that sound is then transmitted through the auditory nerve up to the brain and we process that sound. So how we actually hear and comprehend that sound is a very complex system and several parts of that system can be something that we look at in an evaluation. So that would suggest that there are different types of hearing loss. Correct. There's Basically two big categories. There's a more permanent hearing loss or sensory neural hearing loss. That implies that there's something wrong with the inner hair cells inside the cochlea or something beyond that part process. And there's also a conductive hearing loss. That means something is in the way blocking that sound or not transmitting that sound prior to that point. 
And most people who have age-related hearing loss, which type do they have? It's more of the sensory neural or the permanent hearing loss. And I know that often associated with this, I can tell you by personal experience, is that (laughs) ringing in the ears goes along with hearing loss. Why does that happen? And is there, I mean, you you see all the ads on TV that there are lots of options or there are certain things that you can take that will solve that problem of tinnitus or ringing in the ears. Nothing works, does it? Right. Tinnitus or ringing in the ears is something that a lot of us experience at least one time in our life, but some of it sticks and stays, and that's the kind of tinnitus that you're talking about. We do think it's related to noise-induced hearing loss or some sort of age-related hearing loss, some sort of damage to the inner ear is the majority of it. Now, there's some forms of tinnitus that we just don't know what the cause is. And for the most part, if it's occurring in both ears and kind of staying and non-bothersome, it's something that we generally don't have a regular solution for, and there's no cure for it. So there's no magic pill despite a lot of what the What you hear on TV. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Not currently. <laughs> and quite often when we have guests in, we always want to talk about risk factors for whatever the condition is that we're here to talk about. And for hearing loss, though, risk factors, that's kind of a different problem because all, all that you can do is try to you know, ward off the hearing loss. But what are some risk factors? Yeah, certainly the best approach is always going to be preventing the hearing loss from even happening. So prevention is something we spend a lot of time talking about. So avoiding those loud noise exposures, whether they be recreational at home or whether they be occupational, really if you can limit that, that's going to help long term. Also aging, just in general, everyone ages sort of differently. As we know aging is a very complex process and hearing is just one piece of the larger picture. So your overall health does impact your hearing, and that's an area that we're starting to learn more about as well. If you're talking about your tinnitus, Mm -hmm. how long have you experienced that? Uh, Years. Wow. And it sort of tends to get worse as your hearing gets worse. Mm. Uh, The two seem to be uh, associated, but fortunately... Uh, you know, if you think about it, you say, oh, yeah, yeah it's there. But <laughs> fortunately, uh, most of the time you don't even, it, it, it's sort of in the background. You, you, Great. you can't, yeah, so that's a good thing. And that's what we find out for a lot of people. The less focus that you put on it, the less bothersome it is. So if you're in a very quiet room, you're going to focus on it more. So one. the things that you mentioned with regard to, to risk factors, one would be a family history, mm-hmm. and another would be loud noise. Um, how do you know what's too loud? How do you know? That's a great question. Um, It's not only just too loud, it's how long you're going to be around it. So we always counsel people on a combination of how loud and for how long. Generally speaking, if it's 85 decibels or higher or above, that's something you want to limit exposure to. So you don't want to be around 85 decibels for more than eight hours. And what is what is 85 (laughs) decibels? That's a perfect next question. (laughs) Normal conversation is around 50 decibels or dB. So when you think about 85, that is a little bit louder than that. Um, Nice, easy ways to tell what that is. There's lots of different apps on iPhones or um, any kind of cell phone. There's sound level meters that are out there that can kind of give you a gauge of what is too loud. Wow. So 85 is a max for how many hours? For about eight hours. Oh, my goodness. And that aligns with what our... um, what our current understanding is for increased risk just for constant exposure. Uh, You mentioned your tinnitus. I have to say that once when I was in to get my ears checked, after the test was done, the audiologist said, "Uh, did you grow up on a farm? And I went, how in the world can you tell that? 
because I did. Yeah. did grow up on a farm, working on the farm. But how could an audiologist tell that from a hearing test? Well, right. I can tell you how farmers' ears just look here. They didn't have those headphones on. All the potatoes yeah. growing out yeah. of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> Your ears are pretty revealing. They're yeah. actually noise exposure exhibits a certain pattern on our hearing tests and our evaluation. So we can tell that certain amounts of noise exposure will reflect in a certain pattern on your audiogram. On the audiogram, you uh, are can make a pretty accurate assessment with regard to what type of hearing loss it is, correct? Correct. And you use that as a basis for recommending treatment? Mm-hmm. Or is further there, evaluation. It, yeah. Is there treatment available for every kind of hearing loss? Well, it's a, a good question. The treatments are constantly being improved. Um, there are definitely management options for every type of hearing loss. Actual cures or reversals of the hearing loss don't technically exist right now, So, at least for the permanent types of hearing loss. So a conductive hearing loss, like we talked about before, might have a medical or surgical approach to that. And you hear it all the time. Some people uh, seem, with age-related hearing loss, seem to uh, do okay with hearing aids, that they seem to work for them. Other people say, I tried them, they didn't help me. Right. And that's what's so fascinating about hearing in general. We can have two audiograms that look identical on paper and have two different outcomes for an individual. So there's so many factors in what goes into management options or treatment options for an individual, what kind of you know, if I'm sitting in a quiet environment all day, I might have different communication needs than somebody who's actively going to a conference and talking in loud meetings. All right, hearing expert Dr. Gayla Poling, we need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk a lot more about hearing, hearing loss, and I want to hear a lot more about those hearing aids. Which ones work, which ones don't, why they don't work if they don't. And we need to talk some more about prevention, too. That's the main key. Right. Plus, myth or matter of fact? Hearing loss can affect your overall health. Is that a myth or is that a fact? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. We are back talking about hearing loss with a hearing loss specialist, Dr. Gayla Poling, who is director of the Diagnostic Diagnostic Audiology Clinic at Mayo Clinic in Rochester. So, Dr. Poling, myth or matter of fact? Hearing loss can affect your overall health. Is that a myth or a fact? It is a fact, but it's a loaded fact. (laughs) (laughs) All right, explain. Well, there's just a lot of information coming out right now, a lot of different research coming out to find out exactly how much hearing loss impacts your overall health. So we know from years of experience so far that hearing loss can result in social isolation or depression and really having individuals withdraw from communication, but really um, getting into the specifics about other comorbidities or for example, diabetes, other um, health-related general health um, um, approaches are really what we're trying to get into now. How does hearing impact your overall day-to-day life? So I want to ask you about hearing aids. I mean, the miniaturization with so many technical things has been absolutely incredible. I mean, look at the phone you have in your in your pocket <laughs> or your purse. Uh, isn't there, you sort of wonder, why isn't there something that you can stick in your ear that's so small that nobody can see it that will actually allow you to hear better? <laughs> that's the age-old question, right? <laughs> 
There are a lot of new advancements in the technology for hearing aids and other amplification devices. The challenge is that those devices don't necessarily correct the damage that's done. They compensate for them. So they don't replace or regenerate those hair cells where the damage actually is. So even when we increase and have opportunities to hear those sounds, there might not be perfect hearing. It doesn't necessarily correct that. Does it just increase the volume, or what? how do hearing aids actually work? And, and what's the difference between a conventional and then do you hear about, are, are they called digital hearing aids, right? Yeah, pretty much all the hearing aids we have now are digital hearing aids. The, so what does that mean? What that means is that there's a digital processor in the hearing aid itself, so that sound that's coming in can, have, can be processed a lot more um, efficiently and to a lot depending on the needs of the environment more complexly. So if you worked around a tractor a lot when Mm -hmm. you were younger, Mm -hmm. uh, it would specifically work in that area to help make that part better. Right. So it doesn't just make everything louder. It makes where you need it to be louder, louder. And it also helps in really noisy environments. That doesn't mean it's easy to hear in those noisy environments, but it helps increase the signal to the noise in the background. So what percent of of patients with age-related hearing loss do you think uh, can be helped by hearing it? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. There isn't uh, a magic number. The majority of patients that we do see that qualify for hearing needs do get some benefit from them. Some get more than others. I am mm-hmm. shocked at how small they are. Yeah, they're Quite getting impressive. smaller and smaller every day. And it just depends on your communication needs and where your hearing loss is. So that's why when I look at a friend and I, and I see the hearing that they have, I might not be the same match for that. You were talking about the um, damage to the hairs inside the ear, mm-hmm. and we always you know, would love it if we could regrow or regenerate that process. Is there any research being done with stem cells and all of that kind of thing that we hear that might help that someday? Sure. There's a lot of fascinating research going on, and some of the research is going on within the Mayo Clinic system as well. There, most of this is not translated to humans yet. Most of the research that is cutting edge that we're seeing in the clinic are more um, pharmaceutical interventions to help or prevent hearing loss. So something you might take prior to noise exposure, something you might take in combination with a medication that you're on, such as like chemotherapy or something that you're going to be exposed to where it might cause hearing loss. So you mentioned a couple of things about prevention, and obviously one of them is to avoid loud noises. 85 decibels for eight hours is is really bad. What are some other things that that people ought to do to to prevent this when they get old? Well, a lot of the evidence that's coming out now is just general overhaul, better healthy living is actually contributing to better hearing long-term or prevention of hearing long-term. Hearing loss long term. You mean like eating right and exercising? Yeah, all the and things the, uh, that make everything better for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for your hearing. It's good for your hearing too. Just wow. another reason to to live a healthy lifestyle. Uh, I have to ask about um, headphones because mm-hmm. I've got teens. So uh, when we talk about eighty-five decibels for eight hours. Uh, that's not going to make any difference to them whatsoever. Right. So what's a good uh, guide that we can tell, not just teenagers, <laughs> anybody, because there's a lot of people that use headphones every day for a good chunk of the day. Absolutely. How do you know if they're too loud? I'm glad you asked that. Well, one thing I always encourage people to do is be a good role model. Um, when they see you're wearing headphones at reasonable and, and responsible <laughs> Um, approaches that is a good role model for your children as well. But typically what we say is at an arm's length away, we should be able to hear a conversation going on. So you shouldn't be able to surprise somebody that has their headphones on, um, especially your children. And a lot of people do not have them at that level, do they? (laughs) One thing you talked about was the uh, damage to the hair cells inside the cochlea. 
Can you tell by the audiogram that that's what the problem is? And if so, what about a cochlear implant? Right. So not just from the audiogram alone. An audiogram is just one piece of the entire puzzle. There's lots of measures that we can do that are outside the audiogram um, that are more objective, that are growing in, co- in just how we approach our clinical questions. So that there are some tools that we can use to tell us specifically that we have outer hair cell function loss or inner hair cell function loss. And those are the tools that we might say, come back, we're going to do some additional testing. Um, the other thing, cochlear implants are of growing popularity, and actually we have a lot of success with our cochlear implant patients too. So depending on the type of hearing loss and degree of hearing loss, so typically more severe hearing or profound hearing loss, cochlear implants are very helpful in those scenarios. But that's a big deal, isn't it? I mean, it requires a major operation, and there's a, an appliance on the outside of the of the ear. How, how, how does a cochlear implant work, and, and how do they put it in? Sure. A cochlear implant, um, the purpose of that is it's actually a small electrode that is inserted inside the cochlear into the inner ear itself and electrically stimulates to the auditory nerve. So it bypasses that outer, middle, um, sort of inner ear that I was describing before and, direct, and lets us do direct stimulation. It is an operation. It's usually part of a, a more extensive evaluation and workup prior to that testing, too, or that approach. In your eye, um, in your opinion, what is the most exciting research that's going on right now that you think will help people with uh, hearing loss, particularly age-related? Well, the most exciting research that's really going on right now is how do we access hearing health care in general. So many, of, so much of the population, as you already mentioned, is at risk or has hearing loss but aren't coming in to either get evaluated or to get treatments. So we have a lot of research even here at Mayo Clinic on how do we improve access to hearing health care and when is the best time to come in and get a baseline evaluation. Right now we recommend around age 50. What if it's sooner than that? What if it's later than that? That's something that's really exciting to me. I know that there are some trials or have been some, some trials to try and find a medication that will help with age-related hearing loss. What's the status there? Well, right now there still is not uh, a known medication that can prevent or help with age-related hearing loss, but certainly an active area of interest for many because that would be a magic pill would be great for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be a lot better than having to use a, a hearing aid. <laughs> what's, the, what's the number one complaint you hear from patients that you have prescribed a hearing aid? Mostly the co- complaint is difficulty hearing in background noise or in large groups. Um, you think about we don't communicate in isolation. We're usually in a group of people, and that's the challenging part. And it doesn't always show up on an audiogram that you have increased difficulty in background noise. So that becomes the biggest complaint and the biggest aim in a lot of our treatment. Dr. Gayla Poling, Director of Diagnostic Audiology at the Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, flu season is just around the corner. We'll hear the latest flu shot recommendations for kids. And later on in the program, we'll discuss the common problem of erectile dysfunction. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
Soybeans, soy milk, edamame, and tofu. Does eating soy increase the risk of breast cancer? Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky says... No, in fact, eating soy is thought to be preventative of breast cancer, especially in young women. Soy contains isoflavones, which are plant estrogens. Unlike human estrogens, which in high levels can increase the risk of breast cancer, plant estrogens do not. Soy is part of a healthy diet. And so that women should not be fearful of, of having edamame or tofu or other soy products in their diet. The American Institute for Cancer Research recommends people consume one to two servings of soy a day. And this is considered safe and healthy. So go ahead, reach for some edamame or enjoy that cup of soy-rich soup. In moderation, soy is part of a balanced and nutritious diet. And in other news, let's talk about precision medicine. It's becoming a reality as more doctors bring individualized therapies to the bedside. You could benefit if you suffer from illnesses such as cancer, heart disease, a rare undiagnosed disease, or a genetics-based condition. Individualized medicine, also known as precision or personalized medicine, is the concept that care on all levels can be targeted to your individual needs based on genetic profile, environment, and lifestyle. But how do you seek individual care? Well, it often starts with a conversation with your doctor. The Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine, a catalyst in moving personalized medicine therapies from the laboratory to clinical care, offers these tips on how to talk to your doctor about it. One, ask if applying genetic testing might apply to your condition. Two, ask if DNA testing could make medications more effective. Three, for cancer patients, ask if having your DNA sequenced would help further target treatments. Mayo experts say it's important for patients to learn about options so they can understand whether they are the right candidates for these targeted therapies. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, Tracy, fall is here. The leaves are changing, at least here in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And that means winter is coming. And, of course, that means that flu season is not far behind. Getting an annual flu vaccination is the first and the best way to protect yourself and your family from the flu. This year, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that children aged six months and older should receive the flu vaccine by an injection this flu, uh, this flu season. And they should not get the nasal flu spray because it doesn't provide enough protection against the virus. Well, here to discuss these recommendations and other tips for flu season is pediatrician Dr. Robert Jacobson. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Jacobson. Good to have you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, this is an important time for parents to not only reassess for going back to school if their children are up to date on the vaccines, but also to plan for preventing the flu by making sure everyone in the family gets the flu vaccine. We have some changes with the recommendations this year. One of the changes made by the Food and Drug Administration as to which how we should uh, concoct the vaccines um, actually should lead to better protection. And we aren't predicting big changes in what will be circulating this year as compared to last year, so we expect better protection this year than last year with the vaccine we're using. We have data from um, that really we start accumulating uh, in the winter before, and by February we have enough information about what is circulating in China and what we can expect to see crossing the globe and making it our way uh, really nine, ten months later. 
And some years you're more successful than others, right? That's right. Yeah, well, hopefully this will be a successful year. And let's talk about that flu mist that is no longer recommended. Why is that? Up until the pandemic, study after study showed that the nasal spray flu vaccine, the live attenuated influenza vaccine, that worked better in children than mm-hmm. the injection Form. And in fact, operating on that belief, we continued to recommend it and, uh, and uh, felt that it was as good or better than the injected form. But this year, uh, in April and May, it became clear from studies available to the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices and the Academy, the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, that in the last two, three years, the vaccine had not been working. Mm, uh, in news. fact, uh, it not working when the injection was working at 55, 60%. So this is a problem, and this is why the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, that is the Federal Advisory Committee on Immunizations in both adults and children, have said no nasal spray for anyone this year. All right, so at six months is when we're saying that shot should be, uh, that, that's unusual, isn't it? Has it always been that it's little bitty kids like that? You know, actually, infants under two have hospitalization rates for the flu, for the infection, mm. as high as those 65 years and older. And when that became apparent some years ago, we started routinely recommending the vaccine for those six months to two years of age. Then it was broadened to include uh, uh, toddlers and school-age children, then brought and to make it universal. Frankly, everyone benefits from getting the flu vaccine, and vaccinating school-age children actually is a great way for a community to reduce outbreaks in their community because it's the school-age children that bring it into the home. It's but that herdman, uh, the herd, what is it, immunity herd that you've immunity. talked about. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'd like to create a herd mentality for everyone to get the vaccine. Now, that means a parent of a two-month-old right now can't get their two-month-old vaccinated, but they can make sure everyone else in the household is vaccinated. And four months from now, we'll still be vaccinating against the flu. And that's the time when that six-month-older can get the two doses needed for the first time around getting the flu vaccine. Well, of course, uh, flu vaccine or not, we all want to know what we can do this winter to try and prevent getting the flu, getting exposed. Well, it's hard to prevent getting exposed. Uh, if you live with other human beings, if you if your kids attend school, that's going to happen. But Good hand washing is a great way to prevent viral viral exposures, um, and I'd particularly recommend uh, hand washing with soap and water uh, before meals, uh, after using the restroom, while preparing foods, and of course after dealing with other people. Parents uh, both can encourage the kids after daycare and after school to go into uh, the bathroom, wash their hands with soap and water. Now. The vaccine, however, against the flu is the most important specific thing we can do to prevent the flu vaccine, uh, flu disease. And frankly, uh, uh, I, you know, we just can't depend on good hand washing. Other measures to prevent viral illness would include getting a good night's sleep every night uh, and making sure that, uh, that the sleep deprivation isn't wrecking your immunity temporarily. What is the flu and what is not the flu? Stomach, the, there's no stomach component, is there? Well, the, you know, it's funny that people use the phrase stomach flu all the time, but what we mean by the flu is a respiratory illness. That is one affecting the, the, the windpipes, the lungs, the, the nose and mouth. Um, it can present with a sore throat or a cough and fever. And so many times 
sometimes children present for a rule-out strep throat, they're actually suffering from the flu, giving them a fever and sore throat. Similarly, children presenting with a cough and fever, striking the parent that this might be pneumonia, may be very well uh, suffering a case from the flu. Um, Treatment. I know it's controversial, and uh, uh, the people that have discussed this before, and maybe even you, have said that, you know, if you catch it early enough, there are medications that you can take, but it really only shortens the disease by 24 hours or something. Yes, these medicines are problematic in that they have to be given right away at the beginning of the course of the illness, um, and in fact, uh, on average, work to reduce the illness by a day. Um, We'll use them routinely without controversy for every patient we're hospitalizing with the flu. If you're sick enough with the flu to go in the hospital, we will use the antiviral at the first sign uh, if we're going to hospitalize. If the person's suffering from a chronic condition that puts them at high risk for the flu, we'll uh, consider the antiviral. Again, uh, if we can catch them in the first two days of the illness, or if we know they've been exposed because these antivirals can also be used in people who don't respond well to the vaccine, such as immunocompromised or those babies too young to get the vaccine but have been exposed. Um, And there is a time frame where we can use antivirals then as well. And uh, finally, what about the people who swear? They swear that they got the flu from getting their flu shot. Is that possible? (laughs) No, it's not. You can't get the flu from the flu shot. And I'll tell you of an amazing study done at uh, VA up in the Twin Cities. Here they had recruited hundreds of people, vets, 65 years and older, who agreed to do a very special study. Half of them were randomized to get the flu vaccine in the beginning of September and keep a diary for two weeks of every symptom they got the next two weeks. Half of them got saltwater injections and the same thing. They didn't know whether they got the flu vaccine or saltwater, but they kept a diary for two weeks. And when they decoded the study and they looked at everyone's diaries, lo and behold, some people got as sick as a dog, the worst case of flu they've ever had. And there were equal percents in saltwater versus flu injection. More likely, they caught some other respiratory illness that circulates in the fall. I mean, back to school means lots of new viruses and new exposures. And a lot of us came down with some sort of virus in the last month or so that we could probably blame on the back to school cycle. And that's when we give the flu vaccine. And that's why people tend to link getting the flu vaccine with getting sick. And that's just unfair. All right. Dr. Robert Jacobson, pediatrician at the Mayo Clinic, talking about the flu vaccine. Thanks so much. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss treatment options for erectile dysfunction. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, it is estimated that more than 18 million men in this country have erectile dysfunction, or ED. You've seen it on the TV, the ads all the time. Once or twice. <laughs> well, ED is the inability, of course, to get and to keep an erection. Research has shown that ED is not only a sexual health problem, but it can also be an indicator of cardiovascular risk. Here to discuss ED and cardiovascular risk is Mayo Clinic urologist Dr. Landon Trost. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Trost. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Trost, it's a, it's a little bit amazing, a little bit frightening if you're a male to realize that this condition is that common. 
but it really is, isn't it? Yeah. So some of the early studies on this looked at uh, men, particularly age 40 to 70, and about 52% of them have some degree of erectile dysfunction. So it is a very, very common condition. If men live long enough, essentially all of them will get it to some degree. And it all has to do with uh, hardening of the arteries. Is that the underlying cause? A lot of the same conditions that are associated with heart disease and stroke are also associated with erectile dysfunction. So things such as blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, they all contribute as well. It's probably more complicated in general as opposed to just the vessels. It's the uh, smooth muscle or the tissue itself within the penis becomes less responsive over time. ED can be an indicator or early indicator that you do indeed need to be concerned about the blood vessels going to your brain or your heart, huh? Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think if anything... Uh, erectile dysfunction is one of those topics that uh, makes everybody a little nervous to talk about. And in fact, everybody on the radio probably turned it down a little bit uh, as, as it, you know, the topic came on for it. Oh, not our audience. Not they all turn it up. Yeah, they turn um, it up. But no, I agree. This is probably one of the most important takeaways uh, from today is that erectile dysfunction is probably, if not the best, one of the easiest indicators to show your overall health. In a lot of ways, it ends up being the barometer uh, for your overall health. If we see erectile dysfunction setting in, that indicates there are possibly storms ahead as far as health. It tends to predate uh, issues as far as cardiovascular disease strokes by about 10 years uh, for things. But then isn't there a problem if this could be an indicator of future health problems coming down in the future? If you can just take a pill and take Mm -hmm. care of your ED problems, that seems to be covering it up or masking it. No, I agree. That's a great comment, too. Uh, Although we have methods of treating the symptoms of erectile dysfunction, we don't have cures necessarily for it. So uh, for most people, and most men in particular, heart attacks tend to be that one time in life where they make lifestyle changes. Mm -hmm. And really what we want to get across is when you start to notice erectile dysfunction kicking in, that should be your early warning sign, and that should be the, the point at which you're making those lifestyle changes. If you do that, you may prevent the heart attack. You may prevent the heart damage or things that, that may or may not be reversible. Uh, so these are the times to allow it to be a warning sign for you to make those necessary diet, exercise, other lifestyle changes. If a, if a gentleman comes into your office complaining of erectile dysfunction and hasn't seen their regular medical doctor for a while, do you recommend that they do that? And, and what other tests should they have or how for their evaluation should they have? That's a great question. A lot of it depends on the age of the patient. So we will screen all of them with general cholesterol and blood pressure, diabetes, things like that. Uh, But the younger the man is, uh, the more likely it's it's an indicator of bad cardiovascular disease. So if a 40-year-old comes in, for example, there's a study out of Mayo Clinic actually that shows they have a 48 times higher risk of silent heart disease than if they don't have erectile dysfunction at 40s. By the time you get into 60s, 70s, and so on, that levels off a bit where it's not as good an indicator uh, because we do expect that over time. To the point that Tom just made, though, is it fair to say that for a lot of men, they are more likely to come in and talk about their heart health than they would the ED issue when that would be the first thing that you'd want them to come in for. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And if anything, for most primary care physicians, they'll mention it on the way out uh, Mm -hmm. for it. So they're done with their entire appointment and, oh, by the way, you know, I have a little bit of erectile dysfunction. Oh, that's okay. Let me give you a Viagra and everything's fine. Mm So um, so really when you come in for the appointment, you want this to be the primary complaint that you're coming in for so that you get the full uh, uh, time and treatment for it. 
and you got to remember these are males. You know, <laughs> I'm just saying. Heart may not be working so good, but when that down down <laughs> below isn't working so good, that's what you got to go into the doctor. Need a little more motivation. Yeah, no commentary really. here. But, so you talked about lifestyle factors. So I would assume that one of the one of the things, in addition to uh, some solutions for ED, is that you talk to these gentlemen about lifestyle changes and be as specific as you can about about mm-hmm. about those and what you would recommend. Yeah. So. Probably the most important lifestyle change that we can make is going to be exercise uh, for it. And, and the problem is uh, exercise cures everything, and, and people know that, and yet oftentimes it's not enough of a motivating factor to, to make a difference. Now, the equivalent of increasing exercise to roughly 120 minutes per week of regular cardiovascular is going to be about the same as taking a pill uh, for it. So if you do that regularly over a period of 6 to 12 months, that will be equivalent to taking a Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, or, or Stendra. Is that right? Yep. So, That's uh, impressive. Wow. But the key is how do you convince someone? to keep doing that over time right. and oftentimes it's easier for them just to take a pill than to address the underlying cause diet is relatively similar it's going to be roughly half the benefit of what you see with exercise and what about the the, the other options you mentioned the medication but i know that uh, there's a, a device called a pump mm-hmm. uh, and of course penile implant who's a who's a candidate for those we usually have a stepwise approach to treatment. We'll usually start with pills because they tend to be less invasive, fewer side effects, nothing permanent. And that tends to be the Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, or Stendra. Second-line therapy is often an injection treatment where you self-inject the medicine directly into the penis. It's very effective, but it, uh, it requires a little more personal yeah. investment to it. Third line and a little bit painful. It's like a diabetic injection, so it's not as bad as everyone thinks. And I usually say, give it five tries and and then make a decision after that. (laughs) Um, And then an an internal implant or a pump is our third line if those others don't work. Vacuum devices they tend to work, uh, but they just nobody likes them Mm. Uh, after. Um, a period of six weeks, fewer than 10% are still using them of men who responded. You listed off the medications that people can take. What about the side that you don't need a prescription for, the herbal Viagra? Mm-hmm. Of, and I don't know, for lack of a better name, what you were saying, all of the crazy names mm-hmm. for these products. and <laughs> Well, yeah, including the horny goat weed yeah. and okay. the uh, Yohimbi bark supplements. So yeah. just a what about those? Yeah, of course. Well, uh, <laughs> So they're, they're a great question. We hear it all the time, and it's a, a common question people have is they'll see these on the uh, supermarket shelves or GNC or other places, and they'll wonder if they should take these. In general, if someone approached you on the street and said, I can give you a medicine that's going to improve your sexual function, would you take it from them? And I think the answer is no. Uh, we all recognize that's a big warning sign. Uh, at the same time, you'll go to a store and uh, make that exact same decision and buy something that's making a similar type of claim. At the gas station. Gas station, other places. <laughs> yeah. And one very revealing study was uh, published not long ago, uh, which basically looked at 54 convenience stores in Atlanta and Baltimore area. And they found that 81% of the medicines were adulterated with something else. In other words, on the, the label, it said one thing, but in reality, there was something different 81%. in there. 81%. Yep. And other numbers are just as scary. So greater than or uh, about 20% of them had over 110% of the highest safety uh, allowable limit of things. Um, and there was major uh, differences between the samples. So uh, almost half of the samples couldn't even be identified of what was actually in there uh, from their area. Yep. And oftentimes, they'll include multiple other things that'll make you feel good. So there may be a stimulant for for energy, there may be a stimulant for weight loss, because they know if I take this medicine and I see a benefit, then I'm more likely to buy it the second or third time. And to me, on the physician side, if someone comes in and says they're taking something and it works, I'm far more worried about that medicine than if they come in and say it didn't do anything for them. And of all the different medications that are available, and I think you mentioned four, uh, how, does that, how do you help a patient decide which one is best for them? 
Well, now one of the medicines actually became uh, generic. So the original drug that was investigated for this was known as Revatio. It was put out by Pfizer, and it was for pulmonary hypertension. Uh, that one is now generic, and so typically I tend to go that route first because it's less than a dollar per pill. Uh, the others range anywhere from 10 to $40 a pill. Um, and then there's just small differences between them. So if someone comes back with side effects or something, we may adjust one dose or another. All right, but the key here is if you have er- erectile dysfunction, it's likely that your other blood vessels may need some, some work, some lifestyle changes, and some careful monitoring. I agree. I think the take-home today should be, if you're noticing erectile dysfunction, act now, act early, and let's see what we can do to, to see what else may be going on. Landon Trost, urologist and erectile dysfunction expert, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcast and previously aired programs. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.